0: Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew Wolk, and this is Finding Common Purpose. During each episode of Finding Common Purpose, I'll bring you candid conversations about how to build a 21st century social contract to put more people on a pathway to lifelong success. From healthy birth to a quality education to a good paying job. Last spring, a Federal Reserve survey received a lot of attention for revealing a truth about American life that was both absolutely staggering and, unfortunately, not that surprising. That when facing a hypothetical emergency expense of $400, only about 60% of us could cover it with cash or its equivalent. And that was last year.
1: If 40% of Americans can't handle needing to get a new transmission, how can 40% of Americans handle this tectonic shock to our economy?
0: COVID-19 has shined a scorching light on the inequities in our country. Inequities that are now laid bare even more painfully than before. This moment is a call to action. It's a chance to look honestly at the basic needs we all have and to think critically about how, as members of a shared society, we rise to the challenge to meet them. Today we start with the most basic of needs during the financial calamity.
1: You've just been laid off. Rent is coming up. You can't get through to unemployment. What do you do? You find your local food pantry and you go there. It is a thing you can do to get some support for your family and give yourself some stable ground. I think that food assistance is the bellwether and and that is showing us just how deep, wide and broad this economic crisis is.
0: That's Susanna Morgan, CEO of the Oregon Food Bank. This is the second time I've spoken to Susanna for finding common purpose. Last year she told me about the importance of social connectivity and dignity in the food assistance system. Topics as important now as ever before. And you'll hear more from that conversation later. Right now though, in the midst of this crisis, it's the numbers that are on Susanna's mind.
1: just like nothing I have ever seen. 24 years in food banking, we are seeing at least a 50% increase in the number of people that we are serving. And in some places that number is running more like a 300% increase in the number of people asking for food assistance. It is incredible. And so of course we have to get more food, more quickly um, and in a safe manner and a socially distanced manner throughout our system. And we've just been heads down trying to do that, and we've seen three big adaptations. The first is um really limiting the number of people coming through a food pantry and extending hours and making sure fewer people are going through the food pantry so that you can maintain some social distancing. The second one is is to move the entire distribution outside um on tables or on pallets. So that you've got more space to work in and to maintain social distancing, and then the third one is is to move towards these great big football field size distributions of um, food boxes. The benefits of food box distribution is that you can serve people very quickly in a socially distanced way. The downside of food boxes is that they are they're anti equity. Um, you can't possibly. Know ahead of time what people what food people need, um, what they eat, what's culturally relevant to them, what their dietary needs are, what they've already got in the food pantry, what they know how to cook. One person can't make that decision for another person, and the the less similar their cultural backgrounds or medical backgrounds, the more likely it is that you will make bad decisions on that person's behalf and so they're a choice of last resort when it comes to. Providing food assistance to our neighbors in a way that will honor their food eating patterns and needs
0: I, I'm curious how are you finding to be able to meet the the massive increase in demand that you that you just described where, where where are you able to 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 crank up your get the food and crank your supply chains up the way the way you've been able to
1: yeah I, the first thing that happened was um, drawing down of inventories right? I have a 100,000 square foot warehouse. There are 20 other warehouses in our system. So we were giving out a food that was flowing in and drawing down our inventories. Uh, And um, what was would normally have been a comfortable uh, margin has really shrunk. We're down to less than two weeks worth of inventory for the whole network now. Um, And then the next thing that happened was building up donation chains from the food service side. So usually, the food systems that provide the restaurants and the institutions aren't a great source of donations for us. We are more likely to get food from the manufacturing side or the food um, retail side, the grocery store side. But of course, at least in Oregon and in many places across the country, the the schools are shut down, the um, universities are shut down, and so there's a source of food um, out there, so getting connected into that food and getting that sequestered off into the food assistance system, and then the, the third wave is purchase. And we, in normal times, we distribute two million pounds a week across our network. It's the very very best of buying power. That's a million dollars a week in um, uh, purchase. And uh, frankly, for me, for a couple of weeks, I just I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know how in the world I was going to raise enough money to be able to do that. And then the state of Oregon allocated our system $8 million, um, which is reimbursable to a large extent by FEMA. So thanks to FEMA and the state of Oregon, we are good for eight weeks and a million dollars a week um, for food purchase.
0: And when does that end?
1: Uh, end of May. and. Um, there is a source of food coming in from the federal government. From a couple of the stimulus packages, the Coronavirus Families First Package and the CARES Act, more money was allocated to purchase food and distribute it through a USDA commodities program called the Emergency Food Assistance Program, or TFAP, which we run all the time, accounts for 20% or-ish of our food um, in a normal year. Uh, and so that was going to nearly double that Source of food. So, our goal was to get through the quarantine time um, and to get through until the time that that food started showing up. And the question in my mind is do I have a gap between this source and that food? And then will that food be enough, right? Depending on where we are in the cycle, uh, will I still have a gap even with that food?
0: Yep. Yep. Take me back, Susanna, to right when this all started to happen in terms of realizing the, the the link between the lack of any real substantial savings of any sort and knowing that this crisis was going to have a dramatic impact on your demand what what was the was there a single moment or a conversation or something that that made you be like wow this this is far more than i ever ever realized
1: i don't i don't recall a kind of an epiphany Andrew, what I recall is being as frightened as I've ever been in my entire life for those first two weeks of quarantine. Uh, I actually put up on my wall here the Mark Twain quote, courage is not the lack of fear, it's acting in spite of it. Because I um, I was so scared. I was so scared that we would fail our community. I was so scared that People were going to run out of food, and we weren't going to be able to help them. Um, and I ju- and living in that fear for weeks, because it's my job. It's our team's job to make sure that we are the last place of help, um, that someone doesn't miss a meal because their community cares enough about them to make sure that a meal gets to them. And I was, and nobody knew. Nobody knew how long it was going to last. Nobody knew how deep it was going to be. There was new stuff coming out every day. I didn't know if I was half of my staff were going to get sick, um, uh, and we couldn't move food. There were so many things unknown. You're just living in fear and just going, okay. Well, what's the next problem in front of me? Let's solve that and moving from that one barrier to the next barrier to the next barrier.
0: So. Um... I want I want to spread it wide and and I'm just curious do you think that there is an opportunity to think differently about basic needs do you think there's an opportunity to think differently about food insecurity to recognize that because of that federal reserve report that you know if if we paid more attention to what seems like you know a vast majority of Americans should have that we'd be able to handle things like this more easily, let alone the fact that they just should have their basic needs met. And um, what do you think? What do you what do you think if you can even go there at this moment when we're still in the crisis?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, we've been focusing on four flows during this: the flow of food, the flow of information, so people know where the food is; the flow of support to our network, so that every piece of it stays open; and the flow of change because every crisis brings structural change. Um, And sometimes that's short-term important um, public policy, structural change, but also just historically, uh, the Lunch Act, I went and looked up the bill once, and it said in the bill, as a measure of national defense, because too many young men were disqualified for active military duty in World War II because of malnutrition, So every crisis gives us an opportunity and an obligation, I think, to to push the change in a direction that drives down hunger and drives up justice. I don't know what it's going to look like yet. We'll see where the conversation and narrative goes, and we'll put our shoulders that wheel.
0: Susanna Morgan spoke to me from the offices of the Oregon Food Bank in Portland. When I spoke with Susanna last year, she was also thinking about food assistance and the American narrative.
1: There is this fundamental American belief of pull yourself up by your bootstrap, that people can climb the economic um, ladder if they try hard enough, that if you're not climbing the economic ladder, that it is somehow your fault. And I think there's a lot of data to disprove that one being that the strongest indicator of whether you will live in poverty is whether you grew up in poverty. It's still our our myth, our foundational myth, right? And it's a myth across all economic ladders that folks who are at the high end of the economic ladder look down and say, you ought to be trying harder. And folks at the bottom of the economic ladder look around and go, I ought to be trying harder. I'm trying as hard as I can. Why is it not working? People say, okay, well, if that's true, then why do we have a yet larger and growing group of people who aren't working hard enough? And is it that you're giving out food is somehow meaning that people don't have to work hard enough? And so our efforts at charitable assistance get intertwined into these myths around why the problem persists.
0: I wonder what your the thoughts are around, regardless of your bootstraps, doesn't it have to do with things like the parents that you have? the education or access to education school system, the networks that you may have access to.
1: I think that you're talking about privilege, economic privilege, class privilege, uh, racial privilege, the things that make it easier for some people than other people to have access to power and access to uh, the things that change their lives.
0: The things that were just sort of there, and they were these core components of things that you didn't know they were there because they're already there and they just put you on that pathway where it may look like you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but you already had fully suspenders connected.
1: Yeah. And I think we would also agree that privilege changes the starting point, but it doesn't determine the outcome. You can start with all of the advantages in life, Uh, wealthy parents, good schools, good health, safe neighborhoods, all of those things. And they cannot pay out for you because you don't do the work. You don't catch a particular lucky break. We have thought that this was a single ingredient recipe. Hard work equals success. Where actually it's a multi-ingredient recipe. The access to schools, the color of your skin, the um, economic class in which you were born, the rules in which you learned how to interact with folks, the schools that you went to, and hard work and luck all play a part.
0: Who would you most want to better understand that point you just made? It's more complex than just pull yourself by your bootstraps.
1: My gut reaction was policymakers, but then I thought that actually you've got to go deeper than that and start with voters, that somehow we need to change the nuanced understanding of the American dream. We have been talking here at Oregon Food Bank about stigma, about the stigma around asking for food assistance which is still very real, and we still hear it regularly from people seeking food assistance about how hard it was to come for the first time and how you didn't want to be standing in that line and how you really hoped your friends wouldn't see you. No matter how much we work, and we will continue to get better at this, to create spaces that feel welcoming and friendly and culturally appropriate, it is not a place anyone wants to be. And so we've been thinking about how do we change the narrative? How do we change the story of hunger and poverty in this country from one of primarily individual responsibility, if you're poor, it's because you're not working hard enough, to primarily one of systemic responsibility? And all of these inputs that you take for granted if you have and desperately need if you don't have are just boulders in your path mountains in your path. And for us to have those conversations without ever eliminating individual responsibility as one of the ingredients in this recipe, because of course it is, but it is not in many cases, the fundamental be all.
0: How do you think about those two different parts, food for today, tomorrow for a family? Um, I think they're both essential, but ultimately we'd like more of the latter and less of the former. How do you guys um, think about those two parts of the work that you do on a day-to-day basis, particularly given the complexity of the many issues that are being faced by the people that you're providing support to for today?
1: I want to answer that by talking about another fundamental shift in our understanding of our work and that has been the shift from done to to done with. When charitable food assistance was undergoing here and elsewhere, the emphasis was on how much, how much can you do, how, or how much can you get out, um, measure yourself and your effectiveness in pounds, food distributed. We have come to realize over a couple decades of doing this work that it is never just the thing that you're getting. It's also the experience around the thing. We've come to see that food assistance done in a way that builds community, food assistance done in a way that promotes leadership of people experiencing hunger, food assistance done in a way that builds autonomy and confidence and empathy is in itself transformative. It's a transformative experience. Because poverty is dehumanizing. Poverty is the experience of lack of inclusion. There are places you can't go. There are things you can't buy. There are people you can't talk to. There are experiences you can't have because of money and resources. And if you create food assistance in a way where there are none of those barriers, where this is a place that you help set the rules for how it's going to be done, uh, that your thoughts and opinions matter, that what works well for your family is also what works well at that food pantry, that that is changing society, that that is really creating different spaces than our current economic system creates for folks. And so over time, the distinction for us between what is food today and what is food tomorrow has really changed because the food assistance done in a way that is transactional is food today. Food assistance done in a way that is community building is food tomorrow.
0: But is food tomorrow in this context to you where they would no longer need the pantry itself?
1: When I create broad buckets, the Food Tomorrow programs are a set of programs that are not primarily about food assistance, but primarily about other interventions that hmm. help build people's autonomy and ability to rise out of poverty. Because your question is around the balance between are we investing in giving people fish? Or are we investing in teaching people how to fish?
0: And I think
1: there's a level beneath that which is, are we investing in the relationship?
0: Give is transactional, right? Exactly.
1: And teaching people how to fish sounds skill-based, right? Let me give you a rod and a hook and show you the best spots uh, and teach you how to flick your wrist, right? But there is a level beneath both of those, which is really about personhood, which is really about relationship, which is really about feeling deserving of the things that happen to you good and bad. And both the acceptance of food and the acceptance of skills works much more effectively in a community, in a place where you feel safe and welcomed than as if you're important. And we have found that our skill building classes have started to be as much about what can you teach us as what can we teach you. How can we share skills, not how can we give you this curriculum? And so it, it's changing that work over time too. And so I I find myself thinking that this give a fish or teach someone to fish is fundamentally flawed because it's not focusing on the thing where the transformation will actually happen. The transformation is actually going to happen when people feel included, when people feel as if they have power and agency and voice.
0: So just to... um dig a little deeper so I understand. It's not necessarily that the practical aspect of what might be being happening, right? I mean, we are giving food. We are providing them some skills. However, neither one of those things in the current context is going to have the results that we would want if they aren't done in the context of relational, they're not done in the context of framing it with, as opposed to two, things of that sort. Is that is that a fair summation?
1: Yes. And as you know well, we in the nonprofit world are measured by some sense of, of metrics. What is it that we are accomplishing? And it's a challenge in the nonprofit world because we don't have profit simply to be able to say whether we're successful or not. So every nonprofit is always sort of fighting for and hungering for better sense of What difference are we making? What impact are we making? And the easiest way to do that is in measuring things. Measuring pounds of food, measuring classes taught. At the food level we can measure whether people are eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, right? We can we can do these things. I'm pushing us as a sector and me as a leader to to say I think that we are also need to be measuring social connectivity, social inclusion. And holding ourselves accountable for those. So in our, our cooking classes, we've really come to view them as primarily social network building. When we follow up a year later, we're asking, you know, are you still using those recipes? How much are you cooking at home? But what we really want to know is, are you still in touch with any of the folks that you went through class with? Does that build your, your network, your sense of inclusion? And we're still pretty new at this. We're still figuring out how to do this. But to us, that feels like that is where the change is actually happening. It's people going, oh, I'm not the only person who's struggling to feed my family on $80 a week. I'm not the only person who um, has never tried edamame and (laughs) has been excluded from some of these super hip foods. And how powerful that is and how long-lasting those realizations are.
0: That's Terrific, by the way. And um, I actually, I'm curious, have you found any tools? I mean, I think this goes all the way back, right, to Bob Putnam's Bowling Alone. Are you beginning to find any ways to begin to measure social connectivity? We
1: use ripple mapping. And so we have a single day gathering and then we can go back a year later and do a ripple map and say, okay, who did you meet? There, what conversations that lead you to, who then did you meet? how did that then lead you to the conversations or projects? What has been changed in your community and we can ripple map out and see that Some of the changes, the actual project that they identified, let's say the rural Grocery Store, but another piece of change is that the head of the PTA now knows the master gardener and they started a school garden and that at that school garden, they realized that the kids in the special ed classes weren't having an opportunity to go to the school garden. And so they started looking into how special education was implemented in their community and they got the SPED teachers involved. And through the SPED teachers getting involved, they realized that a lot of the kids in the classes were living in lower incomes, and so they made a special effort to do outreach to the families of kids with FED to make sure that they knew social services, and they did it by one mom talking to another mom, and now there's a whole other group of folks who are showing up regularly at the mobile food pantry on Fridays, right? So you can ripple map these secondary tertiary impacts by who knows who, who talks to who, who shares what resources they have from a single-day Gathering. There's so much skills and resilience among folks of all economic levels, and we tend to think that it has to be let me teach you, let me give to you, mm-hmm. as opposed to let mm-hmm. me create the spaces, let me build the processes for that kind of information sharing to happen. I'll give you one other example a year-long qualitative research study in Tillamook County, which is on the coast of Oregon, uh, with people experiencing hunger, asking them about their experiences with hunger in that community and how, that, how their experiences were with trying to get food assistance and what were things in the way and where were barriers. Learned a whole lot through this process. But one of the things that we learned was the primary way that people found out about services food, but other services as well, domestic violence, housing vouchers, any kind of services was at the bus transfer station. That was the mm. primary place that they found out. Of. It was from other folks needing services at the bus transfer station, not through 211, not through flyers or brochures or any kind of formal system that the nonprofit system has set up, but at the bus transfer station. And then <laughs> we learned that the city was thinking about shutting down that bus transfer station. <laughs> and because we had this piece of knowledge, we could encourage both ourselves go and encourage people who use the bus transfer station to go down the city hall and say, look, this is really critical for me. And it's not just critical for me as transportation, but it's also critical for me because this is how I get to know my people. This is how we built our social network. And I think these are invisible. These places where folks who are living at the bottom rung of the economic ladder, those places are invisible to people who aren't at that rung. We have to lift them up. We have to honor them. And we marched on City Hall and said, not only do you not shut down that bus transfer station, but we would like funding for outreach workers to be able to go and hang out at that transfer station (laughs) and talk to folks regularly.
0: That's a great segue to when you think about, you know, your fellow peers who, and their people that are working with them in programs, when you think about foundations, I'm just curious if there are, beyond what you've said, what what you'd like to see them maybe doing differently as it relates to, you know, seeing more progress.
1: Oh, well, for foundations, I would say, could you please give us multi-year unrestricted funding? Could you invest in our vision of where we want to go without asking for very tight program uh, requirements and reports? Give us the opportunity to decide what we think is the most critical thing year by year. So that would be an obvious one for, for funding. We spend a whole lot of time trying to break our work up
0: into small, chewable chunks. And what's standing in the way of that one, in your opinion?
1: Because people want to say, hey, I helped build that
0: garden, right. not
1: hey, I helped realize the vision of Oregon Food Bank.
0: Or "Or the broader vision of the change that they may even want to see, of which Oregon Food Bank is a key component of it.
1: Yes, but it's a, it's a decades-long work, right?
0: Right, right. What about fellow programs?
1: I would say that the single thing that fellow programs can do is to start engaging their clients in decision-making. Mm-hmm. So, and I would put it as decision-making as opposed to just feedback loops. How will you be changed by what you hear from people using your, your systems and programs? And it is so hard. Oh, my God, it's so hard.
0: To make that change is hard.
1: It's hard to ask well. Um, yep. Yep. <laughs> um, it's hard to hear because you will hear this thing that you've been doing for that's your flagship program is actually something that people in your program find incredibly demeaning or disempowering. It is hard to find the funding to do that because people don't see that as programming. Right. See that as evaluation and no one pays for evaluation. It is hard in every single way and it will transform your work.
0: That's Susanna Morgan, the CEO of the Oregon Food Bank. Visit their website to learn more at OregonFoodBank.org. To read more about my interviews with Susanna, go to the Finding Common Purpose blog at AndrewWolk.com. On the next Finding Common Purpose, UBI, Universal Basic Income, a topic more relevant now than perhaps ever before. Aisha Yandoro's nonprofit provides low-income mothers with $1,000 cash a month for one year to use however they see fit.
1: Our hypothesis is that individuals should be trusted and given the resources that they need to actualize their dreams, and that in trusting individuals and giving them those resources, they'll make it happen.
0: Listen to my conversation with Aisha about this experiment in guaranteed income, and hear how those same moms are faring during the coronavirus crisis. Finding Common Purpose takes a look at what 21st century progress should look like, grounded in a simple idea. Success is a lifelong endeavor. I'm your host, Andrew Wolk. Doug Slaywin with Satellite Sounds Recording is our sound engineer, and Laura Spencer produced the show with help from Rachel McCarthy. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. It's the best way to make sure other listeners can find us. Thanks for listening to Finding Common Purpose.